You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn this evening as we open our Bibles to Philippians, the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, the third chapter, and we'll read the first 16 verses of Philippians chapter 3. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever it was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too will God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. I preach to you on this New Year's evening from Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. And there the Apostle Paul writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like 
His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have gathered together for worship one last time on this last day of 2005. Another year is almost over. Its last hours are winding down. Time is marching on and time is marching out. And so how shall we approach all of this? I think for many of us, this is usually a time to reminisce. We look back over the past 12 months. We reflect on the highs and on the lows. We consider our personal lives, our family lives, our country, the world in which we live. We linger at the good times, births and birthdays, weddings and anniversaries, promotions and raises. And at the same time, we tend to quickly skip over the sad and distressing moments, the sicknesses and deaths, the failures, and even the broken relationships. So for many of us, this is a time to reflect, a time to remember. For others, however, this is also a time to complain. And let's be honest, there has been a lot to complain about in the year 2005. Hurricanes aplenty in the south, earthquakes in places like Pakistan and India, numerous bombings in Baghdad and surrounding areas, weird weather in Alberta and Manitoba and Ontario, and violence, gun violence, it seems almost... Everywhere and every day. And so the pessimists have plenty of fuel to light the fires of their discontent and complaint. But beloved, if reminiscing and complaining is not your thing, what about fear? Is this for you a time of fear and insecurity? You know, there are plenty of people who say yes and who approach the end of one year and the dawning of a new year with a considerable amount of dread and foreboding. What's the next 12 months going to bring into my life? Will I get sick? Will I be unemployed? Will I experience marriage difficulties? What will it be? What bad thing is waiting around the corner? And so you see, beloved, for many people, this is a night of different responses and varying kinds of emotions. Not everyone experiences New Year's Eve in exactly the same way. As in the midst of all of those mixed reactions, a question may even arise as to what is now exactly the right and the proper Christian response to the passage of another year. How does one or how should a believer handle the marking and the changing of days and calendars? Well, you know, if you look at the Old Testament and you can turn, for example, to Psalm 90 where 
Moses, the man of God, says that really the passing of time is a teachable thing. Teach us to number our days aright, he says, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The passage of time is supposed to make you wiser. For the writer of Ecclesiastes, however, the passage of time is an opportunity to get things even more right with God. As he writes in chapter 12, Fear God, keep His commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. So vanity is not the last word after all. No, the last word goes to God and to serving Him. And then, beloved, there is the Apostle Paul. What does he say about the passage of time and and how does he propose to deal with it? Well, in the last verses of Philippians 3, he would suggest, I think, more than simply just one thing. He would suggest that the way to deal with the future is, first of all, to stand firm in the Lord following the apostolic example and pattern. And the second thing he would say, and that perhaps even more emphatically or just as emphatically, is that we need to have every continuing hope in the Lord. And so steadfastness and confidence, faithfulness and trust, resoluteness and expectation, Those are the kind of things that should mark our lives as children of God, as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and as the time goes on. Well, beloved, let's look a little deeper at what the Apostle Paul has to say. In particular, I preached to you this evening on the theme, examining our citizenship as the year of our Lord 2005 comes to a close. And we're going to see that our text reveals, first of all, a rather tearful situation. Secondly, it also reveals an eager expectation. And finally, there is in it a mutual exhortation. Well, beloved, perhaps you have noticed already that, on the whole, this part of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is a rather emotional passage. You read, for example, verse 1 of chapter 4, and you can hear how he he almost trips over his enthusiasm for the believers in Philippi. He says that they are his joy and his crown, that they are the one whom he he loves and that he longs for, that they are his, his brothers and his friends. It's all very upbeat language. But then we turn back to verse 18 of chapter 3 and we read and come across quite different language. Well, you can read at the beginning of our text that the Apostle Paul is rather distressed and saddened. He, he even speaks about tears. He's not exactly in the greatest mood. And so you see, in the span of a few verses... We meet him in the heights and we also meet him, as it were, in the depths. But why is he in the depths? Because of what? Because of whom? Well, beloved, those are rather large questions. 
Notice, for example, what he writes in the verses 18 and 19 of Philippians 3, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. Now that's strong language. The Apostle Paul is mincing no words here. He's speaking about people who are enemies, even enemies of the cross, and he says their their destiny is awful, their God is obscene, their hope is disgusting, their minds are narrow. In short, these are not very nice people. And so who are they? Now you'll be interested to know that as far as their identity is concerned, the answers are all over the map. There are those who say, well, Paul is speaking about unbelievers or Gentiles here. Others say, no, he's speaking about Christians who are opposed to the law, antinomians. And then there are those who say, no, he's talking about Christians who are denying the resurrection and the return of Christ. Or otherwise, there are those who say, no, he's speaking about fallen Christians who deny the work of Christ in one form or another. Or he's speaking about Jewish Christians called Judaizers who oppose the doctrine of free grace. That may be one of the more popular interpretations. But for my part, beloved, I would say to you this evening that actually the Apostle Paul is addressing none of these, none of the above. But rather, the enemies that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here are the Jews. Those Jews who have resisted him every step of the way. Those Jews who have followed him doggedly wherever he has gone on his missionary journeys, those Jews who have constantly been trying to undo and undermine his apostolic work. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you meet them repeatedly. Acts 14, Acts 17, 18, 21, 23, and so forth. They're always there. And the Apostle Paul is saying that as far as these Jews are concerned, the cross of Christ is really nothing but but foolishness. They refuse to even hear about a Messiah who dies on the cross. That's the heights of ridiculousness and blasphemy. They detest this particular teaching with a passion. But the Apostle Paul says there are consequences, you know, if you do that. Indeed, there are very dire consequences. Paul says that as a result of this denial, their destiny is destruction. And by that, surely he means that those who deny the crucified Christ cut themselves off from the only true means of salvation. Without the cross, there is no hope for us. Without the cross, you end up destroying yourself. And that's not all for Paul adds there. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shape. Now what does that mean? 
By referring to their stomach, is he thinking of the sin of gluttony? And as to using the word shame, is he pointing to one or other sexual kind of sin? No, beloved. What the Apostle Paul is really doing is putting his Jewish opponents in their place. And the word that's translated here as stomach is rather refined. It should actually be the word belly. And it highlights the fact that these Jews were very much concerned about matters of food and drink. You know, they had all these food laws. And they worshipped these laws. And indeed, it's so bad with them that the Apostle Paul writes that what they are doing is worshipping their bellies. What goes into their bodies is for them one of the biggest issues of life. Imagine that. But there's not just the matter of their food laws, there's also the matter of the rite of circumcision. They elevate this practice to such a height that it has become their glory, their pride, their boast. We are the true children of Abraham because we have been circumcised. Wrong, says the Apostle Paul. What you consider to be your glory is really your shame. When you elevate a bloody Old Testament ceremony to such a height as you do, you distort it and you corrupt it. And when you have no eye for the fact that Christ has fulfilled all of the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law, then you rob it of its real place and function. You see, beloved, these people have allowed their food laws and their circumcision rites to become their gods. And in the process, what happens is that they no longer have an eye for the true God. You know, beloved, that's always the danger when you come into a situation where ceremonies, customs, and traditions go out of control. You can get so wrapped up in the traditions of men, in their meaning, in their application, that you no longer see the living God. Take, for example, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Some people get so fixated on the outward symbols of bread on wine, on whether or not the bread is leavened or to be unleavened, whether the wine is to be strong wine, weak wine, or juice. And they forget all about Christ. We should be at the center of the sacrament. And the danger is always present, as Paul puts it, that we we begin to set our mind on earthly things. And that's not in the first place a reference to money or to material things. Rather, it's a warning against getting so concerned about customs and practices that, that pass away 
and that have no lasting or eternal value. Be sure, beloved, what brings the Apostle Paul to tears is the fact that there are people who live such distorted and misguided lives. They don't know the cross. They think that salvation is all about jumping through the right religious hoops. They oppose all grace and they have no living, vital, vibrant relationship with the true God. Theirs is a religion of human deeds alone. And you know, beloved, that may not be a very nice and a very fitting message for a time like tonight. But still, I think there's something for us here to think about as we step over into a new year. Why do we do what we do? What is it that that motivates us, that, that drives our lives? What is it that we live for? Is our Lord's Day worship, our participation in the sacraments, our study of the Word of God, is it really being driven by a desire and a devotion to know the Lord more? In our offerings, in our acts of service, in our life of witness, are they being spurned on by a deeper love of Christ? Why do we do what we do? Why are we what we are? Why do we live as we live? Is it Christ that stands in the center of our lives? Is it God the Father in His glory that we seek to serve in everything? That's the way it should be. You know, the Apostle Paul, he goes on to remind us that real Christian living isn't fixated on food or ritual or on the things that pass away. No, real Christian living is a life of heavenly citizenship. Paul says our our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. And you know, I think that must have resonated with those Philippian Christians of long ago. Here they were living far away from Rome, the northern regions of Greece. And yet they were considered to be citizens of Rome. They had all the same rights and all the same privileges, if not the opportunities, as if they were living in Rome itself. They were far, far away. And yet they were special. Yes, and you can see, beloved, that that's the kind of imagery that the Apostle Paul applies now here to the believers, to the Christians in that city of Philippi. Here they're living their daily lives in a city surrounded by unbelief and by pagan culture. Here they are living far, far away from their true home, but nevertheless they know they're special. And they know they're not just citizens of of Philippi or citizens of Rome, but ultimately they're citizens of heaven. 
And what that means is that their citizenship is of a much higher and more exalted variety. And of course, they cannot describe it in detail. They don't know all the nuts and the bolts of it because they haven't yet tasted it fully. But they will. And when they do, it will revolutionize their lives. And it will exceed, they know, their wildest dreams and their fondest expectations. And it's going to be for more than just a moment. In this life, so many good things and so many good times are only for a moment. And then they pass away and we're back to the mundane. But this citizenship, is eternal. It's going to last and last and last. And as a matter of fact, it's never ever going to wear out. It'll go on forever. And not only will it go on forever, it'll go on forever in glory and without decay. We're so used to a life of ups and downs. We alternate between health and sickness, riches and poverty, happiness and sadness, peace and strife. But not there. There the bliss will never end. And there the happiness will not stop, hit a bump, crash and burn. No, it will roll on forever. Oh, to be a citizen of heaven. What an honor. What a joy. And at the same time, what a future to look forward to. But of course, we wonder, don't we, when this will be? When will it happen? Paul reminds us that we will not enter into our true home until the day that Christ returns. When he comes back, we get to go home. Home at last and home forever. And little wonder, therefore, that the Apostle Paul writes, and we, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language is such, beloved, that it's as if the people of God are, are standing on their tiptoes with their heads held high. And they know that something great and marvelous and spectacular is going to happen. There's great anticipation in the air. Paul says they're eagerly waiting. Why? He says, well, because they, they know. They know that their Savior is coming. And you know, the word that Paul uses there for Savior is a word that he rarely ever uses. He uses it only one other time in all of his writings, and it means really the great vindicator and deliverer of his people. He's the one who's going to usher in the last and the final stage of God's great redemptive program. 
he will bring his people home. And in addition, Paul says he will also make his people ready. Tailor ready for their special home. Paul says that he, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And literally, he doesn't say lowly body, but literally he says the the body of our humiliation. And thereby he highlights its feebleness, its weakness, its mortality, its corruption, its vulnerability. And I think we all know something about that, don't we? Not one of us has a perfect body. We do not know what it's like to have a body that, that never gets sick or tired or weak or stressed out or frustrated. And we don't know either what it's like to live without pain or tears or sorrow or suffering or limitation or death. All of those nasty things are so much a part of our daily lives. And yet a day is coming. A day is coming when we shall know. When Christ comes back as Savior. And Paul says he's going to use his cosmic, sovereign, almighty power, the power that has made and that maintains and that transforms the universe to transform us. And this body of humiliation is going to become just like his body. A body of glory. Glory at last. And isn't that something to look forward to? The world is nothing like this. That sees only a life of a few years and then extinction. But we, on the other hand, if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we believe in so much, much more. And that much, much more, that's what keeps us going. That's also what will keep us going in the year 2006. Because you see, even in the midst of death and disaster, war and poverty and sickness, these promises, these realities remain. To face, we can stand on our toes. And through faith, we can crane our necks to see. And through faith, we know that He's coming again. And that when He comes, Everything is going to be so marvelously, mysteriously, wonderfully, eternally well. That's the word of the gospel. But in the meantime,
tend to forget as they travel this road, and that is those words that the Apostle Paul also gives in our text, stand firm in the Lord. You know, earlier in verse 17, Paul had urged the Philippians to follow his example. And on the surface, that sounds to be rather conceited and boastful. However, those of us who know the Apostle Paul well know, too, that it's nothing of the sort. For he always says that whatever he is in terms of righteousness, whatever he may be in terms of holiness, in terms of his conduct and ability, it's because God has worked it all in him. As he confesses later on in chapter 4, I can do everything to him who strengthens me. Well, God has worked in Paul in such a way with his spirit that he dares to invite his readers to follow his example. And at the same time, he says that God has worked in others too so that they also live according to the pattern that that Paul and his co-workers have been setting before their very eyes. And together, they're all standing firm. Yes, and Paul would like the Philippian Christians and he would like all the readers of his letters throughout the ages to do the same. We are all to to stand firm. And I think you all know what that means. You've all seen billboards and signs blowing in the wind. You've seen paper get blown here, there, and everywhere. It flies all over the place. Well, some people are like that. Yesterday, they were into this new fad. Today, they have adopted this new guru or hero. And tomorrow, they're going to jump into some entirely different kind of philosophy or what have you. And in the end, they just never seem to know where they're at. Or where they're going. Their life is always a life in flux. Why is that? Because their lives are not firmly anchored or rooted in anything. You all know what happens to a fence when the posts are barely dug into the ground. When the first strong wind comes along, that fence begins to bend and sure as anything, it's going to break. Yes, and that is now what is happening, Paul says, to those, some who call themselves Christians. They're getting blown away. They're leaving the way of the Lord. They're forsaking the face. The world with its distractions, its toys, its affluence is is blinding them and carrying them along. And the devil with all of his devices is destroying them. And this is going on with greater and greater frequency in our Western world especially. Over the last year, some of you come back from Europe And you tell me 
stories about empty churches and wayward people and declining morality. In a matter of a few years, people who once considered themselves Christians have turned their backs on the Lord and on His service. And by the same tokens, families that were once stable, committed, and principled have fallen to pieces. They've gone back to paganism or worse. Beloved, we need to take note of that. Careful note. For it's also happening among us in our world. Let's not close our eyes to it. And indeed, let it serve us as a reminder as well as a warning for each of us to to do exactly what the Apostle Paul says here, and that is to stand firm in the law. Hold on to what you confess. Keep the faith. Do not be deceived. Do not allow yourself to be turned into a ping-pong ball. But anchor your life in Jesus Christ, and in His great salvation. And follow the example of the saints of old. And be there for one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Beloved, as we step over into the year 2006, Let's not forget also this part of our calling in life in the Lord. And so let's move forward, never wavering, and always looking out with bated breath and eager anticipation to the great day when Christ will come and will bring us home. And also bring us into the fullness of our heavenly, glorious, and eternal citizenship. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.